Broadcasting live from San Dimas High School, this is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm your host, Garrett B. Strother Esquire. I'm one of your other hosts, Seamus M. Connolly Esquire. I don't have my own joke. <laughs> I am here as well. I'm back. Ricardo, I don't have a middle name. The <laughs> triumphant return of Ricardo Salgado, ladies and gentlemen. I am so glad to have the band back together. The boys are truly back in town, even though we are quite literally so far apart in different <laughs> we are towns. very separate. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. What do you think, boys? Should we jump right into the, the good old news? Let's, Let's go right the into the news. And something that went up right after our podcast last Sunday was Christopher McQuarrie's first glimpse of behind the scenes of the new Mission Impossible stunt. Oh, I didn't even know about this. You should look up the picture just to be familiar. And then there's also some leaked behind the scenes footage that I'm assuming was leaked by the studio to draw hype. To get that hype going. Uh, we already retweeted it from our Twitter account. It is a giant long ramp in a mountain range. That Tom Cruise is going to ride a motorcycle off of and then pull a parachute. What? This That seems like such a strange uh, <laughs> departure from some of the stunts that we've been seeing in these last few... I mean, I'm sure it's going to be absolutely, like, incredible to watch, like, him fling himself off the side of a mountain, but... I'm looking at the like... photos right now. <laughs> oh my god. I need, to, <laughs> I need to look at this. It is a absolutely massive ramp. I'm I'm looking at these pictures right now, and I have no clue how they're going to... Oh, my God. Like, is he going to be undercover in, like, an Evil Knievel show? How is he going to, like, get himself <laughs> onto a motorcycle ramp off of a mountain? We always wonder how they're organically going to tie these stunts into the plot, and they're usually pretty good about it, I think. I think so, so... too. I mean, the, the, the few that I have seen have really, you know, so... I'm sure this is going to just tickle my fancy whenever I do see it. You were talking about this last week, Garrett, of, like, their bare-bones process going into it, and you mentioned this crazy cruise ship quarantine plan that they had going on, and I, I would have bet any amount of money that the ship would have been the, the focal point of whatever big stunt this is going to be, so I have been thoroughly proven wrong, and I'm a little disappointed that the cruise ship might not, uh, might not be as big of a part in this movie. Who knows, maybe he'll do a motorcycle jump off of a mountain, use the parachute to glide over to the cruise ship. Now that is what I'm talking about right <laughs> there. I, I'm in for that. That's that's worth the price of admission. Up next, we've got some new standards that the Academy is putting on films that will be up for Oscar consideration. These will be implemented by 2024. So movies that are going to be nominated for Oscars have to meet uh, two of these four diversity guidelines, which basically have to do with what percentage of people that worked on the film were marginalized groups, what the story of the film is dealing with, who the film is targeted at, and what the actual cast of the film's makeup looks like. Yeah, I saw these the other day, and I guess considering how many problems the Academy seems to have with recognition awesome. yeah. of a lot of these uh, marginalized groups, it seems like maybe it's a, a good step forward to at least 
normalize it a little more in the industry, to, you know, make it a little less of a mandate after a while and more of just like the general practice of how it should be in the first place. Oscar So White really got to them. They're never going to have yeah, that trend ever God. again. You know, at least they're, they're taking steps to make sure that they're not going to go that way, even though they have been kind of fine with that for the majority of the Academy's existence. At the same time, a lot of the criticism targeted at these new guidelines are that they're essentially implementing guidelines that most major studio productions already follow. That's not to say that it isn't good to incentivize the film industry to diversify, but at the same time, it's kind of almost the Academy's like, we're not nominating movies that have diverse casts because they aren't being made, even though that's definitely not true. Mm. And that maybe the Academy needs to look just as much at what films are being nominated as opposed to the films that are in the nomination pool. Like you were saying, Garrett, there there are definitely studios who were naturally doing this already just because it's a, it's a very normal feeling thing to do. But I think this is also the Academy's way of like, like you said, Ricardo, the Oscar so white stuff is like, it got to them so bad that they're making sure it couldn't ever possibly happen again. It's like a threshold of normalcy that most people are already doing that they are just kind of covering their own asses in a, in a way that it seems like maybe it's still generally positive, but I don't know. I don't know. It'll be very interesting to see where the Oscars go from here. There's not much to discuss about it, I don't think, especially until we see what kind of films are nominated under these guidelines. I'm sure there's a lot of angry people about this online. Yeah, I'm Aren't sure. Aren't there always about everything, though? <laughs> oh, you, you, you involve... got me there. That's true, man, but you involve specifically race and anything in specifically America and people will find any weird reason to go against something that seems like it's generally a progressive move, so. In other news, we've got two-pronged Disney Plus Star Wars news. One, we didn't get a trailer this week, but we did have our first images from Mandalorian Season 2. Oh, yes! I get excited just looking at pictures of that stuff, man. Entertainment Weekly exclusives. Honestly, these photos look super staged. But we've got mostly the Mandalorian, Grief Karga, Cara Dune, Baby Yoda standing around looking cool. Moff Gideon, played by Giancarlo Esposito. We've got a close-up of him. A nifty shot of the Mandalorian on a speeder bike sporting his new jetpack that we saw at the end of last season. Yes. Oh, man. I do agree with you that it really does look like a photo shoot, but it's something, and I've been thirsting for for new mando stuff i like how one of these images is just like a tuscan raider yeah well, that's the thing that's the last image there's a tuscan raider and a bantha which, which this is a good looking bantha that... man it's like looks like a like a big old puppet oh yeah presumably that means season two will be returning to tatooine which probably confirms that we're going to be seeing Boba Fett this season. Oh yeah, wasn't that wasn't that a little bit of a rumor floating around anyway? The end of the Tatooine episode in season one, you have the mysterious oh, yes. pair of boots, the hidden figure there, with the sound of Boba Fett's spurs. So a lot of people thought that was Boba Fett at the time. If I remember correctly, the three of us were kind of skeptical that it was going to be Boba Fett. But the confirmation that Tamura Morrison is going to be in the new season kind of seems to point more that way now. 
absolutely no problems with that. Having that brought back in with the expertise that the Mandalorian has with these characters, I'm more than excited to see how that'll even go in terms of their relationship together. I can only assume they're going to be enemies in a lot of ways. Especially because Boba Fett, of course, famously wears Mandalorian armor despite not being a Mandalorian. Yeah, I, I was thinking Whoa, about that I'd, too. I didn't even know that. What? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, but the Fets are not Mandalorian. What is this Boba- cultural appropriation? This is horrible. <laughs> Honestly, with how seriously they take their uh, Mando religion, that might that might be the big point of contention there. He uh, he's just a clone of a man who was also a bounty hunter. Is that why uh, Boba Fett kind of sucks at everything he does? He has no real training. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, uh, you go watch the Clone Wars and tell me that, buddy. <laughs> and speaking of Tatooine, we had two confirmations regarding the Obi-Wan series. Mm. One is that it will start shooting in spring 2021, and also Ewan McGregor said in an interview that it will only be one season which is more than fine with me. I was actually super happy to hear that. Originally, the whole feverish demands of the Star Wars community were give us a Ewan McGregor Obi-Wan movie, so I think that making it a limited series will keep it from being, you know, stale after however many seasons they want to continue on. We have The Mandalorian for new weekly fun adventures for however long they want to do that, so I think limited series I'm more than happy with. Obi-Wan's story is pretty open and shut. There's not a lot left to tell there, I don't think, because most of his Clone Wars arcs were wrapped up, with the exception of his rivalry with Maul, which was then in Rebels. addressed later in Rebels. Right. And between the ending of Episode 3 and the beginning of Episode 4, I just don't see how there's going to be a lot of room to tell stories on Tatooine, so I'm glad that having a limited series says to me that they have an idea that has a definite beginning, a definite ending, and isn't going to be forced to come up with all of these convoluted ways of getting Obi-Wan on adventures. Agreed. Let's stick with our theme of sand. It's coarse and irritating. It gets gets everywhere, everywhere, of course. Including all over our new Dune trailer. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I don't know anything about Dune. I've never read it. Um, I've never seen any of the bajillion adaptations that have been done, but I'm excited to go into this. I really like Villeneuve as a director. 2049 was really good. Arrival's really good. You know, he's on a roll, and this new trailer looks nothing but impressive to me. I'm in the same boat as both of you of just, like, I know the name in Legend. I know that it has ties to the production of the original Alien. I know that it's, like, considered, like, the Lord of the Rings of, like, sci-fi novels. Because I, I, I don't know what year it was actually written, but I know it was a while back before a lot of these sci-fi concepts were widely used. But that trailer got me, like, chills, man. I recognize so many impressive faces that are in that cast. Everything just looks like absolute chaotic sci-fi badassery. I might even try to get my hands on a copy of the book before this movie comes out and do a little source material research. That'd be fun. We could do a book club, Seamus. Oh, a little little book club? I, I like that idea. The only other thing I know is that I'm not sure if it is an actual reference in Beetlejuice, but <laughs> Beetlejuice's hatred of sandworms, is that anything to do with actual Dune? I don't know. go ahead and say they're in the same universe. 
I'm going to go ahead and say Beetlejuice confirmed for Dune. Michael Keaton. <laughs> He'll get the end credit. Oh, I, I can just because I love that movie so much. And I'm, I'm honestly very recently so excited for Dune. So if they just want to crank it up to 11, get Michael Keaton on the horn. In the background, if you look real close, you can see <laughs> Michael Keaton riding a sandworm. Oh, beautiful. Perfect. Wait, when does it come out again? December 18th. I bet you that will change. I hope it does. For as impressive as it looks, it feels like it's a theater experience, you know? Giant space battles, huge monsters. It looks like an epic as in like every sense of the word, so... Well, that's a good segue into our next couple bullet point pieces of news... Which is, mm. despite the fact that Tennis has been out for a couple weeks, clearly theaters are not impressed with attendance and, for whatever reason, are continuing to push their releases further mm. back than they had even initially slated them to be pushed. Specifically, Warner Brothers, who released Tenet, is pushing their Wonder Woman release all the way to Christmas. Candyman, the Nia DaCosta horror film, is moving to 2021 at some point. They haven't set a firm release date yet. And then Antebellum is actually going straight to on-demand. It's not going to be in theaters anymore. As much as I love the theater, I think that's going to be the new trend over here. It's just pushed until it's impossible to push and then just plopped on the, the highest bidder streaming service. I'm all for, for it. Um, I mean, you heard what Fauci said this week about he doesn't oh, think yeah. it's going to be safe to return to movie theaters until a year after an effective vaccine is distributed. Yeah, I think he said at earliest, like, late 2021, which, God, that feels like a million years from now. Mm-hmm. Like you said, Garrett, I'm not entirely even against having direct access to these movies in my living rooms if they if there's n- literally no other option, but as long as it's not the Mulan Disney Plus uh, variant of that where I'm paying an insane rental fee for, like, a day, 24 hours. Well, that's the nice thing about what we just did with our main story, Bill and Ted Face the Music, is despite being a $20 rental price, you can also choose to, for $5 more, just buy the movie. If I have the option to buy the movie digitally for a similar price point to the rental, I'm really a fan of that. And I think that's what a lot of the in-theater rentals or premium rentals or whatever they've decided to call themselves releases went to that model pretty soon after these things started coming out was you could purchase them for a similar price point to your rental fee. At least you can rewatch that whenever you really want to, spread it around, show it with other friends. I feel like as long as it doesn't get a little more, like I said, Disney Plus a little greedy on the minimum time of rental, I mm-hmm. think... Uh, I'll still shell out decent money for an actually, you know, a good movie that I want to see, like Dune or something. 100%. Yeah, I'd be willing to do more expensive rentals. I'd be willing to purchase movies if I'm really excited about them, like we did with Bill and Ted. In other news, real quick, you guys said you didn't know about the whole uh, Ray Fisher Justice League thing? No, no clue. Yeah, I'm not even sure what you mean by that. Oh, uh, back in July, like Ray Fisher, the cyborg from Justice League, he oh, sure. called out... Uh, Joss Whedon for gross, abusive, unprofessional, and completely unacceptable behavior on set. When did uh, this happen? uh, Back in July, Fisher came out and like said, I think on Twitter or something. And now there's like a Warner Media investigation, 
And they're looking into Holy Joss crap. Whedon, Jeff Johns, wow. and uh, John Berg. Wow. I Holy had no idea. Moly. The quote from Fisher is, I believe this investigation will show that Jeff Johns, Joss Whedon, and John Berg, among others, grossly abused their power during the uncertainty of AT&T's merger with Time Warner. Fascinating. He's not holding back. Like He uh, publicly said, like, the president of like DC or something contacted him and was like, we'll, we'll get Whedon if you could just lay off Jeff Johns a little bit. And he was like, oh, wow. <laughs> and he was like, that's no, I'm want. not doing that. Hell's bells. Yeah, that's, yeah, like you said, he's not pulling these punches now. I'm fairly certain that there's going to be some actual actions taken against this for people so big. Because, like, people like Jason Momoa are behind him on this. You know, it's kind of like what we were talking about with COVID. If, if this is happening to the leads of your movie, how are other people on that set being treated? Yeah, jeez. So yeah, thank you for bringing that up, Ricardo. I had no idea. Yeah, let's keep let's keep an eye on this one uh, in the coming weeks to see see how it's handled or the coming however long it takes. I'm sure this will be in the news till it gets settled in some kind of way. In other TV news, something that I thought was long gone or at least had been pushed to the recesses of pop culture, it has been confirmed by AMC that The Walking Dead will be ending in 2022 after its 11th season. Wow. Talk about Walking Dead. Jeez. <laughs> I haven't enjoyed that show since, like, I think I watched till the start of season seven, maybe. I don't think I've liked Damn. that show Whoa, since season three. you Seamus. <laughs> oh, man. I was... I don't even know why. I loved I loved the books. The the video games are something special. The Telltale video games. Oh, those um, are great games, yeah. Oh, love them. But the show, gosh. They just... This is all possible, maybe, spoilers for stuff that happens. I truly have no idea. For the I four had, of you that are still watching The Walking Dead. Yeah, right. <laughs> if you're watching The Walking Dead, maybe skip ahead or something. But as far as I knew, Andrew Lincoln was getting his own trilogy of Rick Grimes yes, movies. Yes, there were supposed to be those what? Walking Dead movies. We talked about on that on the podcast, even. Oh, goodness. I, <laughs> I don't even remember how long ago that was. So, yeah. I don't know, man. I don't think those movies are happening. <laughs> I think... They might come out as a series of graphic novels later. That'd be fine. Yeah, do it like that. Well, they are doing a Daryl and Carol spin-off TV series. So oh, it's great. It's also possible you could see the Rick Grimes storyline play out on that, which that sounds way more appealing to me than ever returning to The Walking Dead. So should we transition into video game news? I don't think we need to dunk on The Walking Dead for another half hour. <laughs> We really could, but why don't we just move on? The biggest, most exciting reveal of the end of the PlayStation 4 generation, they are remastering and re-releasing the Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, the game. It's so amazing. It's like the best beat-em-up side-scroller, Streets of Rage-style, low-bit video games that I've ever played. It's It's been years since it, it was only ever released on the PS3. And so back then I bought it in my young obsession with how good that Edgar Wright movie was and how amazing the Brian Leo Malley books have always been in my mind. And it's just got me so hyped up. It's co-op, boys. Oh, we gotta, yeah. <laughs> we gotta get in there. Plenty of fun to be had with the yeah, with just... uh, multiplayer aspects. Real quick, for anyone that doesn't know, this uh, game was lost to time. 
right? Like, you straight up couldn't yes. get it for the longest time. Yeah, that broke my heart, too, when I when I learned that it was just, like, wiped from the store. And there's no physical copy that you could ever get your hands on. They never manufactured any of those. And it's just, like Ricardo said, it was a treasure lost to time, incredible music, great humor. It was made at the exact same time as the movie, I believe, and yes. that was also before the ending of the books was published. So the game, the movie, and the books actually all have different endings, interpretations of how this story could conclude. And it's genuinely a very interesting version of the story itself. So it's coming out as a complete edition, which means it will have all of the downloadable content that was for the PS3 game included with your initial purchase. Not only will it be for PS4, but it will also be available on PC, Xbox One, Nintendo Switch, and the Google Stadia. Presumably, considering the capabilities of the PS5, fingers crossed also it will compatible. be on the next-gen consoles as well. Yes. Uh, this was all part of Ubisoft's Forward event, the other big news of which is a remake of the Prince of Persia Sands of Time game, which I've never played oh, Prince yeah. of Persia game, but I would be interested in trying that out. With Jake Gyllenhaal? Yeah, uh, you play as Jake Gyllenhaal making the movie The Prince of Persia. <laughs> I'd, I honestly might rather play that over a real Prince of Persia game. So we had major news come out from Microsoft regarding the next generation of Xboxes, the Xbox Series X and the Xbox Series S. We've got the release date, which will be November 10th, just in time for Black Friday, and the price points, which will be $500 for the Series X and $300 for the Series S. Presumably, that will be similar to the price points for the PS5 and the the digital edition of the PS5, so 500 and 300. We'll learn more about that when on the 16th, so just coming up right. in a few days, the PlayStation Showcase comes, which is when everybody's expecting there to be the release date and the price point. So we'll cover that next week. So what do you guys yeah. think? Are you going to pick up a, an Xbox Series <laughs> X? I don't. I don't think so, Garrett. I'm a. I'm a PlayStation boy since the day I yeah, was born. I, same I, I here. can't. I can't cross the aisle. We are. We are a PlayStation podcast. That is for sure. Unless Microsoft <laughs> wants to sponsor us, we will sell out in literally one second. So. I will smash I, my PlayStation Four in front of you. <laughs> we'll put it on yeah, our new that, YouTube that channel. That is Ricardo. absolutely true. Is it the so same up, deal Gates. as PlayStation, where the cheaper one is digital only? Um, yes, I believe so. Yes, I believe so. It's their smallest Xbox ever. Ooh, I don't know how to feel about that. Yeah. I personally am going for a disc drive just because I have a solid collection of PS4 games that will be Same. usable in the disc drive. That's exactly how I'm feeling is the idea, and this is the same way that movies are going, the idea of taking out a disc drive, of cutting out physical media, eliminates the resale market. And going I mean, back to Scott Pilgrim real quick, they can just take it away from you. That's exactly right. Yeah. The digital edition does not appeal to me because you're going to end up spending a whole lot more money than what you're saving buying games new instead of buying games used. Also, you could never borrow a video game again. That's like, you know, me and Ricardo have been yeah. trading off games since years ago when we were uh, roommates in freshman year, and uh, that would have just been literally impossible to, to share something like that when it could be so easy. So let's I still roll got up. your copy of Fallen Order. I know, I was thinking about that the other day. 
let's roll up this conversation into our pop culture catch-up of this week, which is about the first PS5 reveal. We have not actually discussed that on air. I'm sure everybody knows about this for the most part. A few months ago, the PlayStation 5's features and its design were first revealed to the world. It looks like if Aperture Science decided to make a video game console. And I love it. Yes, anything that reminds me of Portal or Aperture Science is an immediate thumbs up from me. Exactly, especially because of the fairly simple design of the Xbox. You know, Xbox has always kind of had the more straightforward, rectangular systems, but this is just another in the long line of weird-looking, cool, future feeling PlayStations. I think it's an interesting design choice. It's growing on me, I guess I'll say that. Let's go ahead and run through what games were showcased. So these are just some highlights. Right, right. There was the Deathloop video game, where assassins are stuck in a Groundhog Day-esque scenario, where every time they kill each other, they reset the time loop, which is already a video game mechanic, essentially, anyway. I actually didn't hear about that one. That sounds like a really fun idea. It looks very cool. Very looper, very Groundhog's Day, I'm into it. And then the Horizon Zero Dawn sequel, Horizon Forbidden West. I didn't get my hands on the first Horizon Zero Dawn, but I've heard nothing but very positive things about it. And as a Sony PlayStation exclusive, I think is going to be a very solid franchise as a whole. I think I'm going to have to get my hands on the first one to get ready for this next one. Um, We've also got the Spider-Man Miles Morales game coming out. Oh, oh, Miles, baby. Truly one of my most anticipated PS5 titles. I don't know if you, Garrett, or you, Ricardo, have played or seen the new Spider-Man PS4, but we are in a golden era of Spider-Man, I think. We have been getting so much good Spider-Man stuff. I have nothing but high hopes for Miles Morales here. It's supposed to be a shorter game, I think, though. It's not like a full sequel. Oh, is it? I guess that makes sense. It was really fast that they put out a new one. It's similar to Uncharted The Lost Legacy, acting more as a spinoff than a fully-fledged sequel. Okay, so there's been a lot of rumors of a $70 price point for new games. Hopefully Miles Morales gets spared that whopping (laughs) price tag. That's what I'm talking about, the resale market, baby. The resale market is our best friend. Yeah, I know. It's 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 rough. Though I will say some companies are denying that model and keeping their games consistently priced at the $60 level. Like, I believe CD Projekt Red is doing that as oh, well for, for the new... For Cyberpunk. But uh, we'll see. That might be the new world we're living in here once we get to the next gen. Shames, remind me, who's, who's in Cyberpunk again? Oh, the man, the myth, the legend, (laughs) the man who somehow revived his career bigger than it ever has been 20 years later, Mr. Keanu Reeves. Whoa. I think that's as good a segue as any to go into our main topic for today. All three Bill and Ted movies today. Why don't we just jump right into how incredible these movies are as a trilogy, which is kind of insane for me to say those words to call Bill and Ted a trilogy now. So let's start off, kind of work our way through, talk about the first two. I think we're just going to mark spoilers for Bill and Ted 1 and Bill and Ted 2 right off the bat. If you want to jump ahead to when we start talking about Face the Music, I'll put in a time code for that. We'll do a non-spoiler, then a spoiler talk for Face the Music. Sounds good. We've mentioned them on the podcast 
a plethora of times. But they really are classics. They are some of the first movies that we watched together, the three of us. Yeah, that's true. They hold a special place in my heart. They're dumb, and they're weird, and I love every second of them. Like, they are pretty stupid, but they're just so likable. They're just such a fun time. For all intents and purposes, two high school morons who just get a time machine to save the universe. It seems like almost a half-assed idea altogether, but it's charming. They're dummies. They just kind of stumble through so much fun stuff. They never get annoying. They're always endearing. Oh, man, that really does depend on who you ask, but I personally agree. (laughs) I watched these movies with my girlfriend, Kara, and she was ready to blow her brains out if she heard them speak in unison one more time. (laughs) Like, by the third movie, she she was not having it. I could almost describe it as just pure entertainment. It's, like, engaging and completely aloof at the same time. The simplicity of Bill and Ted 1, its premise is brilliant and really a lot of fun. It is not something you could think about or take seriously in any capacity. Absolutely not, especially with the the performances of Keanu and Alex Winter <laughs> are just... Really good, wow. but also... They're, they're s- exactly, they're perfect for what they are, but I don't think I could stand being in a room with those two real people for a (laughs) second of my actual life. Bill and Ted as characters started with the writers Ed Solomon and Chris Matheson did Bill and Ted as improv characters while they were in college. (laughs) I I didn't know that actually. That's very funny. And they're actually in all three films. In the first movie, they are the Ziggy Piggy Waiters. In (laughs) the second movie... They are the two men at Missy's seance, and oh, wow. light spoiler for Faith's music, in the third movie, they are the demons that give Bill and Ted directions. Oh, oh. no way. That is that is hilarious. I had no idea. That's very fun. Real quick, kind of a side thing, but did the whole Missy thing weird anyone else out for a bit? I think that is one of my favorite jokes of these movies is the Missy stuff. It's also, except for the regrettable overuse of fag throughout the first two films. um, Oh, yeah, jeez. I almost forgot about that. It is definitely the joke that has dated the most these movies. Uh, Not just because Missy's dated the most, but, um, but it just would Uh. never fly a few years later. Oh, no. It starts off really weird, but I like what they do with that joke, where they just make it weirder and dumber where she eventually ends up just dating everybody and Mm -hmm. she's everybody's mom just the mistake of missy i mean mom (laughs) it makes me laugh every time it it may maybe not a doable joke into one of my favorite jokes where sigmund freud's like would you like a seat on the chair he's like no man i've just got a minor edible problem (laughs) (laughs) yeah Oh man, we should we should probably just get into the time travel of it all, huh? Really, the thing that is so impressive about the first Bill and Ted is how much fun they are having with every single historical figure that they encounter. Yeah. Billy the Kid is an obvious standout just because he's really into time travel immediately. Yeah, he does not he doesn't really uh, question it too much, does he? And I love the romance between him and Socrates. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. They are a great pair. 
I watched this movie with my sister, and she was shipping those two the entire time. (laughs) Well, there's the whole sequence where Bill and Ted first see the princesses. I had never really noticed Socrates and Billy the Kid are playing catch in the background. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) Once I noticed it, that was all I could focus on, which is them playing football (laughs) in the background. Just hanging out. Our favorite henchman, crony actor, Al Long, makes the wonderful appearance as Genghis Khan. He's honestly the best in everything he's in, but going back, rewatching any 80s, 90s movie, you will find him and you will realize that he has been one of your favorite characters accidentally without even realizing. He's great in this, too. I mean, come on. What can you even say about his, his mall rampage? Rampaging the now-defunct Oshman's Sporting Goods. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that joke played really well, didn't it, boys? We definitely got yeah, with that Yeah, totally. Man. It's Socrates, well, Billy the Kid, Joan uh, of Arc. Sigmund Freud, Joan yeah. of Arc. Freud with all of his phallic everything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I had never caught the sequence when they're cleaning the house when he puts the vacuum up to his mouth. You missed that? I love that part. I feel like we're missing somebody. Napoleon. There it is, the Ziggy Piggy Napoleon. himself. Water Park Adventures. The water park is such a goofy fun part in his weird old French underwear going blasting out those water slides. is hilarious. I think it's definitely one of the highlights of the movie for me just because it's like a weird little short isolated from the <laughs> yeah. rest of the movie. <laughs> He's having his own fun time with the, the brothers, right? Uh, with Deacon. Yeah. With, with, yeah, with Deacon. Brother Deacon. I felt stupid because it took me way too long to realize the name of the water park was Waterloo and how that connects back to Napoleon. <laughs> well, it's also brilliant because earlier when they're in the Old West, Ted, in an effort to fend off some would-be bandits, offers them free passes to Waterloo Amusement Park. Oh, yeah. For as dumb as it is, it's kind of genius in a lot of ways oh it is absolutely like arrested development it's how can it be the dumbest in the smartest way and man does it hit so many of those marks god also similar to arrested development where it's just packed with jokes just wall to wall there's yes joke after joke audible jokes there's visual jokes like you said with sigmund freud and like his corn dog at the mall all really good stuff of course culminating in the greatest history report of all time San Dimas High School football rules. <laughs> that part always always make me laugh, but no joke, when Bill and Ted get to their actual report, it's chills. It's the triumph you feel in your chest. It's the best. I love it. It's a lot longer than I remember it being, I will say that. Yeah, that, that is true. It does feel like it's extended, but they had to really highlight everybody's, uh, all these historical figures, what they could do. And inversely... The concert at the end of Bogus Journey felt a lot shorter to me than I remember it being. That's fair. Also, personally, I the credits of Bogus Journey kind of bleed into the concert for me. That's true. <laughs> In a lot of ways, because of all the fun shenanigans they have with the stills and the music. That song is still stuck in my head. Uh, the God, end gave song for Bogus God gave rock and roll to you. God gave rock and roll to you. Kiss, The best baby. kiss song, yeah, straight up. <laughs> So yeah, let's talk about Vogue's Journey, a sequel to a popular time travel film that features almost no time travel. Now, I was exposed to Bill and Ted first through Bogus Journey when I was quite young. It was playing in a friend's house in a room with nobody in it. 
and I stumbled upon this TV just playing a movie, and it was the... It was like the middle of the movie with some very strange robotic overtones and it just hooked me and I had to like go find out what it was. I like asked every adult I knew trying to explain the weirdness of what was going on <laughs> until sure somebody you got me there. crazy, Shavis. Oh, yeah, I sounded like a little psycho boy trying to be like ripping each other's heads off, dunking them into garbage cans, you know. George Thank Carlin you. was there. <laughs> yeah, right. Come on. I honestly for a sequel of one of my favorite movies, the original Bill and Ted, it's like almost equal to me. It is so good in so many ways. It swings bigger than the first Bill and Ted, certainly. That's for sure. Holy crap. But I think it feels discordant for sure. It doesn't feel cohesive because there's so many moving parts and they do so many different things. But I think I would rather watch Bogus Journey just because there's so much weirdness to it. Even though Bill and Ted 1 is definitely better. They somehow out-weirded themselves with just Station alone. (laughs) Station yeah, is so right. weird. I love Station. Why are there two, and then he's one when he's building, but then there's two stations again because that's more comfortable? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of Station stuff that doesn't really <laughs> They're only referred sense. to as Station. Yeah, Singular. Singular. Station. Yeah. We haven't even talked about William Sadler as Death. Oh, the best. <laughs> he's like the star of that movie. Oh, yeah. One of the all-time great comedic supporting performances, I think, like, period. He's so good. I was really impressed this watch with how much heavy lifting the sound design for Bogus Journey does. Mm. Especially when they're in the afterlife, because obviously it does that weird backwards echo on their voice. Right, right. But in addition to that, every time they move their heads, it goes... Oh, yeah, it does do that. They they add in the little sound effects. The guitar riffs from the air guitar that they play a lot more specifically match their hand movements, which is weird. (laughs) And I also love it when they give every character their own specialized air guitar. So Ted's dad has his, like, mandolin. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. yeah, I did notice that. I thought that was really funny. Very fun. And Deaths is more bassy, because mm. obviously Death plays the bass. All the Death stuff in general, I think, is fantastic. I especially love the, I guess, initial introduction with all the games. I guess that's not the initial introduction after they wedgie the <laughs> god of death. I'm sorry, but... I think you mean they Melvin, Seamus. <laughs> Melvin. <laughs> Can't believe me. we just Melvin Death. <laughs> Another absolutely stupid way to deal with something like this, but it's great. Come on. Evil Bill and Ted are so evil. Again, it's like an idiot's idea of what evil is. It's not yeah. actually evil. It's just like... They're like s- spitting on their corpses. Is like, take that. Am I crazy or is the mountain they get pushed off of the Star Trek Yes. Set for that one super famous Star Trek episode. And then they're, episode. they're watching that episode earlier in the movie. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I didn't even so notice they're, that. They're completely aware of what they're doing. Oh, yeah. Truly, the hell sequence <laughs> of everything is, like, maybe my real idea of what hell is like. Just, like, personal chambers of freaky, distorted torture. It's pretty effective as, like, a, a pretty dreadful way to torture them, even though, I mean, each one is still kind of goofy in a lot of ways. Seamus, are you telling me that Grandma Connolly Esquire is down there waiting to give you a little smooch? Oh, God. <laughs> With those nasty teeth just caked in whatever, it would be the worst. You know who that is. 
who plays Grandma Preston. Is she the Where's the Beef lady? No, it's Alex Winter. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. I didn't know that. That's so funny. They were originally going to hire an old woman to do it, and then he was like, <laughs> I want to do it. <laughs> That's so funny that he volunteered. From this new Bill and Ted, I hope that he kind of dips his toes back into acting a little more. I mean, I'm sure he's fantastic behind the camera as well, but I like his performances. I don't know what to say. No, he's just a likable guy. Truly, yeah. And he looks really good in a tank top. I'm not afraid to say it, Seamus. I, you know, <laughs> I'm not afraid to agree with you, Garrett. Or not tank top. The a words I meant were... That he yeah, wears crop top. For crop top, yeah, yeah. That's, of them. Weirdly enough, that's what I was thinking, too. Little half shirt. I like how consistent the time travel rules in Bogus Journey are. They're very consistent also with the time travel rules from Excellent Adventure. But the mm-hmm. idea of having to, like go in after you're done accomplishing the thing that you need to accomplish to place the to things go back and, that yeah. you need to accomplish them. It's kind of BS in a lot of ways, <laughs> but it's so funny. Just like, they set that up with the, the, the dad's key. keys, yeah, right? Yeah, Isn't yeah. that the first? And then, ultimately, a truly satisfying climax at this Battle of the Bands at the end. Mm-hmm. And we get, like we said, such a kick-ass rock and roll song. Which they had and to... A, time travel thing after 16 months of intense guitar training they come back with like full beards that's right i almost glossed over the introduction of little bill and little ted the babies they had with the princesses in their long training session also everything in the credit sequence of hearing this amazing kiss song with like the history of wild stallions playing out in like headlines around the world Yep. Death going so low and uh, them selling out all this stuff, doing all these amazing wild stallions goals all throughout their things. Well, let's start talking about Face the Music. That's a good idea. I really like the way that the world of Face the Music still honors all of the end credit newspapers from Bogus Journey. Yes. That they didn't have to mm. go back on any of that. And the fact that the, like, the first 20 seconds of the movie tell you what the end credits of Bogus Journey tell you. Yeah, pretty much. It was nice to see that they were keeping it as consistent as they possibly could with their own material. I enjoyed Face the Music. It was not the best Bill and Ted movie, by which I mean it was the worst Bill and Ted movie. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you know. But it was very interesting to me, and it was something that I simultaneously admired and was frustrated by, is it is a legacy sequel that really has very little fan service. I'm not I'm not against that. I feel like, you know, there were a couple really specific fun references here and there, but they could have they could have given it a little dash more, you know? I, I could have gone for a couple more uh, character references. I really wish there had been more air guitar. Was, yeah, I okay. was very frustrated with the lack of air guitar. For the most part, the writing did a really good job of balancing these are characters that now need to be grown men that we take seriously and live in 2020 but also they still need to be bill and ted i think they walked that line really well for the most part they did such a good job writing them that i was disappointed that they didn't have more air guitar (laughs) i thought samara weaving and bridget lundy Payne, who played bill and ted's daughters did a good job i felt like their writing did not feel like it super differentiated them into two characters uh, it kind of felt like in the original two movies, like, Ted was kind of like the dumber one. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, so I can see what you mean where, like, Little Bill and Little Ted do kind of feel like the same person. Yeah. That being said, they're still fun to watch, I think. They're oh, yeah, I, I was very entertained charming. by them. I thought they were charismatic. I think we're all kind of in agreement with that one. Should we jump into spoilers? I'd love to get into the nitty-gritty, because there are so many... Yeah, so let, let's give some final thoughts. Bill and Ted face the music. It's a good time. It is a nice follow-up to the first two films. It has a good message. It's maybe worth waiting until it's on HBO or Hulu or whatever it's going to end up on. Yeah, I think I'll agree with that. I think, like you were touching on before, if you were to rank the three movies, it would definitely be in the third place. But that in no way, to me, means that it is not a very fun time if you're a, a classic Bill and Ted fan. I feel like it's about on par with the first two. I don't know, I had a lot of fun with this one. I just, like, the performances were charming, and like I've said before, I watched this with, like, my brother and sister who'd never seen a Bill and Ted movie before. I showed them the first two, and they were digging it. They've been liking the progression of the three movies. All right, I think let's go into spoilers. Robots from the future. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I want to talk about. The Terminator? Kevin... Excuse me. I don't know what it was. Dennis, Dennis Caleb was McCoy. Dennis thank you. Caleb McCoy. I loved him. Every time he spoke, I just couldn't help but laugh. He's a similar role to Death in this movie, but I feel like yeah. he doesn't really join the team until the third act. Or like he doesn't even start exhibiting his less terminatory feelings until the third act. Yeah, I don't know. I wish maybe they would have introduced him as a main player a little earlier. There are three storylines in this movie yes. that converge at the end. They all are fun Bill and Ted stuff, but also all have major flaws that I think really hold this movie back for me. So let's talk about Bill and Ted first. They have uh, yet to fulfill their prophecy. They're just like kind of 50-year-old losers <laughs> playing yeah. open mics. I really liked the whole wedding intro. I liked that Missy's marrying Deacon now. Oh, yes. See, to me, that was a great fan service start, at the very least, just to have the Missy stuff right at the top. Absolutely. I was digging their song at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> My problems start coming with their storyline when they actually start time traveling well first of all i think any movie that gives especially on this scale such a short deadline for the characters to fulfill Mm. automatically feels less substantial for some reason because you know in the first couple movies they take place over multiple days and the idea that like the third bill and ted adventure takes place in an afternoon feels a little like oh yeah this is the tacked on third one i don't think you're wrong there i feel like to set it up a little bit, they go to the future with Kristen Shaw, God bless her soul. Who, who is, now is the, the daughter of George Carlin. Yes, the, yes. And we knew that Rufus had kids because he has Bill and Ted true, sign true, true. things for his kids. That's right. So that's a nice little thing there. I don't know if she really felt like Rufus at all was kind of mine. Nah, I mean, yeah, not really. But like, it was not nice even to see her Rufus, dialogue. even for like two seconds. I love that. Yeah, we get that. to see hologram recorded Rufus in the original Rufus. phone booth. But anyway, Kristen Shaw summons Bill and Ted to the High Council, and they give them the time limit until like 7.17 p.m., which is, you know, they only have a couple hours it's to do like, all of this. I think it's pretty much the actual runtime of the movie, which is also a really distracting thing to be often if the ticking clock oh. is the exact runtime of the movie. It reminds me that I'm watching this movie. 
you you almost you know you kind of feel like you're on the ticking clock as well. I guess that's kind of the point of that device is to make the tension of the climax feel like it has more stakes uh, in terms of keeping it on that ticking clock. I think part of the disconnect is for me is that when I go into a movie, I really want to feel like I am on this journey with the characters. But when it's such a similar time frame as the runtime of the movie and that they are referencing that runtime, all I keep thinking is, oh yeah, this movie's going to be over in 20 minutes. Yeah, I guess. But the universe would be ending in 20 <laughs> minutes, you know? It's all a thing. Then Don't... that means I know Bill and Ted are going to save the universe in 20 yeah, minutes. I, I kind of yeah, get what maybe. you're saying with that. I liked the concept of them going to visit the other us's. Right, yeah. Now, I think this is the other problem with giving Bill and Ted such a short time frame, is that idea becomes the entire crux of their storyline. Yeah, as the different yeah. time jumps to visit themselves, looking to steal their own song. Like, really, save their marriage. Right, right. It would have been really nice if the midpoint event was them going to hell, because another major complaint for me is that there was not enough death in this movie. Oh, yeah, man. I totally agree dovetailed with their story is the story of elizabeth and joanna going on their own time travel adventure with their future selves which i thought we were going to get some kind of reveal or payoff with the future yeah, selves. yeah that we were at least really going to see a little through. bit of it yeah right like they're in the background for a good portion of a lot of these very integral scenes you know skipping ahead a little bit they actually get their time machine from the main Bill and Ted that are coming around. Which I really like that. I like that. Yeah, I, I like that, that too, because really that funny. sets up for getting their way to hell and all that. But like you said, that made it seem like we were going to see that half of the adventure. And I liked that Elizabeth and Joanna were actual characters in this movie. <laughs> right, A lot yes. more than they've ever been before. Yeah. What happened to the original actresses because they, they change every movie the fact that it doesn't matter because they aren't yeah. characters they're there to be the princesses but yeah i wish there had been more of a story with them it was just like we're mad at you and then we're gonna pop up a couple times and now we're gonna not be mad at you anymore at the end of the movie part of the reason that i had such a problem with the entire story being revolved around going to see the future us is is it never felt like bill and ted actually made a decision that diverted their path they never make it clear that Bill and Ted make a decision that changes that future. Yeah, it's kind of just like battling against the one future that they don't want, that it seems like they, they're even told by their scummy future selves to like not go back and try to fix things that will make things worse, and they do it anyway. And like It's kind of like more of an inevitable future that they're trying to fight against instead of like it very well could have been forking paths that go to maybe realms like Big Jacked, Bill and Ted, which I thought was hilarious. Now, I don't know as much about time travel as Kid Cudi does, but... <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> everything in the Bill and Ted movies, including this Bill and Ted movie, imply that everything is one timeline and that when you go back and you time travel, you're altering the timeline permanently. Right. In this movie, I didn't feel like there was a moment where they were like, oh, this decision that we're making right now is what's going to alter the timeline to keep us from losing our wives and becoming losers. Besides the one part at Dave Grohl's house where they put buckets on their heads to confuse yes. their future <laughs> selves, which I thought was also hilarious. That's a really, see, that's a really good joke. And I just, wish, that's like, yeah, I just wish there had been more of a journey for Bill and Ted to go on. Honestly, that part of the movie felt like a TV movie to me, which made me really glad that we had the little Bill and little Ted yeah. journey. 
Journey, which is great. It's almost the marriage of the concept of the first Bill and Ted with historical figures and time travel and the second Bill and Ted, which is more focused on them as musicians and trying to overcome their own kind of musical destiny or whatever. It's, it's very fun. Now, so who do they get they, for their band again? It's like yes. Jimi Hendrix and Louis, Louis Armstrong. Armstrong. Mozart. The Chinese legend of Ling Lun, the flutist. And then a caveman who is supposedly the most legendary drummer in human history. Yes. I really enjoyed that part. I was really hoping that we were going to get a Beethoven. Super callback to like, you remember our dads, come help us out. Or even if... Even if they splice Little Bill and Little Ted into the scene from the first Bill and Ted, and then <laughs> yeah, yeah. Beethoven was like, no, I'm not going, or something, you know. What if they had done that, where like, they go back in time to the first movie, they see their young dads? I was really hoping we would see, yeah, especially with how de-aging has come along, I was really hoping we would return to young Bill and young Ted. Definite missed opportunity. Um, in my notes, the only two specific, uh, references that I found and wrote down, Kid Cudi's station callback. Which is great. Got me hyped up. That was very fun. (laughs) The other one that I noticed that I thought was very fun is that when they do meet up with death in the afterworld, on his shelf in the background, he has Battleship in, on the shelf. I saw that (laughs) myself. Yeah. The memories he holds. There were a few other things. There was the Circle K billboard in the background at the end. Oh, I didn't notice that. I I also want to say when they're presented with the wall of instruments in the future, a pair of the guitars are the future guitars that they use in the second movie. There's those guitars and there's the guitars that Rufus brings them at the end of the first movie. Right. Yes, yes, yes. So they have multiple sets of Bill and Ted's old guitars in the future. And then I liked the idea of Little Bill and Little Ted being the ones to write the song. I thought that was great. I kind of saw that coming. Yeah, well, obviously. Uh, Preston Logan, but yeah. like, I still thought it was a very good way to go about it. But I, again, I wish that those characters had felt more like specific characters to me and that I'd gotten to know them a little bit more on their journey. Because I liked the journey they went on, but I didn't feel like I learned too much about them on it mm-hmm. it felt like they were just like female clones of their dads when it maybe it should have been more like what a modern bill and ted would be like today like they don't feel like they that grew is, up in this time yeah. period also this movie has no falling action it's that <laughs> it does really just cut off me. doesn't it? actually i was like oh the movie's over now i guess i had the same reactions oh i guess that's the end of the movie this is presumably the last installment of the bill and ted franchise i want to see what are the characters daily lives now i want to see bill and ted being good husbands I want to see what the girls are doing. I want to see what death is doing. I liked the message of the movie, which is the idea that what if everybody in the world was part of the song? It's a little trite, and it's a little rushed. <laughs> but, you know, it was a good time. I think it fits well enough with, like, Bill and Ted silliness. I think there were some missed opportunities for some really good follow-ups to the first two films. So yeah, I think that wraps us up for our most excellent interpretation of the Bill and Ted trilogy. All right, Ricardo, it's time for our pop culture reference of the episode, which actually ties in with our main segment, Bill and Ted's Face the Music. Or just Bill and Ted Face the Music. It feels weird to not say Bill and Ted Possessive, you know? Oh yeah, it is the one that doesn't do that. In 
Bill and Ted face the music. Light spoilers. During some time travel shenanigans, we get to see Jimi Hendrix playing the Odeon Theater in 1967. This is actually a really big moment in Jimi Hendrix's career. It's the moment that he was put on the map as a great musician of the era. It was a concert that was in attendance by every superstar that you can imagine, both of that time and the future. Ricardo, you're not even going to believe what I'm about to tell you. You're going to give me some, audience, some big names? In the audience that night to see Jimi Hendrix perform and have their minds blown by his outstanding guitar performance, you had Eric Clapton, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, Pete Townsend, Mick Jagger, Freddie Mercury, and David Bowie. Oh my god. Those are it's all insane. like huge names. And you can still go to that Odeon in London. It's a movie theater now, but you could go check it out. You can sit where they stood. So whenever you hear people talk about Jimi Hendrix playing the Odeon, that is the cultural event that they're referring to, which was the starting point of Jimi Hendrix's career, essentially. Did not know that. This has been educational for me. You learn something new every day, Ricardo. <laughs> Let's move on to our Save the Rec Centers for the episode. Mine, uh, Save the Rec Center this week, puts an extra emphasis on save, because mine is, I've brought this up so many times, Infinity Train on HBO Max, which is in very great danger of being cancelled if it doesn't get more views. It's just so good. It's brilliant and dark themes with like aimed at a mature audience it might be one of like the best things that cartoon network as a studio has ever put out each season is like under two hours so you can easily like binge the whole thing in maybe like a day or two you've been hyping up this one for a while so i'm definitely gonna have to check it out ricardo especially to help with the cause you know my save the rec center is actually several months old but we haven't been able to podcast in so long that I'm able to plug it. One of the few movies released in 2020 that I've actually seen is Netflix's The Half of It. One of Netflix's cute little teen rom-coms that they churn out like they're nothing. Mm -hmm. But it's a cute little queer twist on Serenota Bergerac. Where oh. a introverted girl who doesn't have any friends at her school is recruited because she's a good writer by one of the football jocks to write the girl he has a crush on love letters the twist our little introvert friend has a crush on her too ain't that a classic setup it's really cute <laughs> annie and i watched it on a zoom date you know it was a good time it's not a perfect movie it's a lot better than most of the movies that netflix puts out that's for sure i think that about wraps us up for the latest episode of pop culture reference if you want to reach the show, you can tweet us at PCR underscore podcast. That's also the at to follow us on Instagram. We have a YouTube channel now where we're not only posting our full episodes, but we're quickly going to be posting what are called pop culture recaps, a quick way for you to catch up on any of the content that you're looking to start again. So if you need recaps on Marvel movies, seasons of television that you're looking on picking back up, we're going to have a place for you to go and get a quick 5 to 10 minute recap of what you missed from the previous installments. That's going to be Pop Culture Recaps at our YouTube channel, Pop Culture Reference. Thank you so much for tuning in. Catch you later, dudes! Be excellent to each other. 
and party on, dudes.